Well, uh, it's been an absolute joy for the last three weeks to uh, climb the hill from the plains each Sunday morning and come out the tunnel going, ooh, I wonder what the weather will be like this morning. <laughs> um, you do live in a very, very lovely part of the, uh, uh, the world and you need to remember that. Uh, it's a great place uh, to come and visit and certainly I imagine it would be a great place to live here. Um, I need to do a little bit of housekeeping. Um, when I go back to the office at City Bible Forum, um, the administrator says to me, so did anybody fill in any information wanting to know about City Bible Forum? And I go, oh, I forgot. <laughs> so I'm letting you know today, if you want to find out more, uh, someone said to me at the earlier service, I wish I hadn't known about that resurrection debate, which I'll refer to a little later. So if you want to know what events we run, we do have a mailing list and I imagine Kez wouldn't mind if I said, just pop on the bottom of that um, welcome uh, slip that you've got. I'd like to find out more about CBF or City Bible Forum, and then Kez can let me know, and I'll, uh, I'll let you know about what's on. Okay, now for three weeks we've looked in the book of Acts. If you remember the first week, what we did was we... The, the main question we looked at was, who is in my sheet? And the reason we asked that question is because... Uh, Peter had a sheep brought down to him with unclean animals, things he'd never touched in his life. And the connection of that with the gospel was, well, who are the people that you would never go near, the people that you write off, the people that you think are too far away? Who are those people? Because the gospel is not too far away to reach them. That was the first week. Last week, we looked at the whole thing of what is the gospel and what is culture? Because when you've got people who want to come in and embrace the Christian faith, they, you don't want them to adopt a whole lot of cultural stuff that is just part of this group meeting together. You want them to know what the gospel is clearly as distinct from the culture, whether their culture or the one that we're exhibiting. And this week we just we venture out and we go into the public space with uh, Paul the Apostle and see how the gospel is actually spoken and delivered into that very, very public setting. Now, I don't know whether you've ever found yourself having to kill time in a big city. Maybe you've been delayed. Maybe you're waiting for other friends at a rendezvous point, but you have to kill that time in some way or another. You've been alone in a big city. Well, that's exactly what Paul found himself in the situation of in Acts 17, verse 16. If you want to just, it's on the Bible reading there inside your leaflet. So just have a look at it with me now. Uh, so there he is in uh, verse 16 of chapter 17, one of the greatest missionaries, Paul the Apostle, he's waiting around for his friends to catch up with him so that they can continue their missionary trip. And Athens would have to be a great place to be stuck in uh, for a few days. It was an enthralling city, and for Paul, no doubt it would have been described to him from his childhood. Um, it was... Uh, the cultural capital of the world at the time. It lived on its great past. Rome was now eclipsing it, but it was still the centre. It was still the place of history and uh, so much of the birthplace of the present world that he was living in at the time. The nearest equivalent for me, I think, was going to London um, in 2003. I'd never been overseas and uh, walked into this city and I was gobsmacked by it. I kept looking around thinking, this is the Monopoly board, you know, finally. <laughs> I've discovered all these, and, and even stories and uh, nursery rhymes and, you know, countless Bond movies. There were the scenes. 
there were the things that I'd um, instinctively known. I felt like I was going home in some ways, and I think that's what Athens was like for Paul. But what did he see? Let's have a look at verse 16. He could have been spellbound by the sheer beauty of the place, the architecture, the history, the education, but the beauty and the brilliance of the place does not dazzle him. He sees a city, it says in verse 16, full of idols, bereft of the only true God that could rescue them. And the language in verse 16 is more like, not just full of idols, but really smothered and deluged by idols. The place was swamping them. And here were the images of Apollo, and I put some of them up there. Apollo uh, was the, the, the god of art and sport, and Bacchus, the party god, and uh, Aphrodite, the god of sex, Ares, the god of violence and battles, and Hermes, the god of travel and communication. And they were stunning images. They were made in gold and silver and ivory and marble, and they were made by some of the greatest artists of their day. And they were gobsmackingly beautiful. And they were placed all around the city. One historian said that it was easier, jokingly said, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find another human being. But the word that Paul uses here to describe seeing a city full of idols is not the usual word we'd say to take a look. It's, It's a word that means to look underneath, to actually not just see the appearance, but to work out what's really going on. It's a real observation Uh, seeing. Paul looked and he saw not just physical statues, but he saw a whole city of people running as an idol factory, um, politically, um, economically, recreationally. And he looked beyond the spectacle and he saw what was going on and what made this city tick. And that takes time. That takes a lot of observation. A friend of mine runs a large city church in Melbourne and it it attracts a lot of uh, city workers. And he said there was a person that joined their church. It it just started by sitting up the back and then just gradually filtered down close towards the front. Went out for a coffee with this um, minister. And this guy, he said to me, this guy, the minister said to me, this guy presented so schmick. I mean, he had the best suits he he, um, you know, he's a high-flying sort of uh, investment banker. He was rolling in money. He had a penthouse in the Docklands. And soon after this man became a Christian, he asked to meet with the pastor. So they met up in a cafe. And halfway through the conversation, he slid a ring across the table and said to him, I want you to have this ring and I never want you to give it back to me. The pastor was curious and said, why, what's the ring about? And he said, well, that's my, that ring is my membership to a high-class brothel in this city, which, though a bit of fun for a while, has actually pulled my life apart, eventually owning my soul through sexual addiction. Since meeting Jesus, I never want to set foot in that place again. It'll destroy me. So, you know, echoes of Lord of the Rings, really, isn't it? What do you do as a pastor when you get a ring like that? You know, put it on the jumble side? I don't know. (laughs) But he kept it anyway. But see, that's ultimately, I think, what Paul is able to do. He is able to see through the glitz what it looks like. He can see underneath that city and to see that it's captured by its own uh, makings and and, uh, idols. 
If you want to know the idols that are at the bedrock of someone's life, all you have to do is ask, what if taken away would cause them to fall apart at the seams? What if you took it away would make the bottom fall out of the bag for you or someone else? That's the idol. Um, There's nothing wrong with keeping fit. There's nothing wrong with having a party, a nice home, a holiday, a good career. But absolutely yes, if these things become the centre of who you are your reason for being. Paul looked and he could see what was underneath uh, the package of this city. And he saw people drowning in their idolatry. So what do you do when you, when you see that? Well, he feels. And here are the four points of this, this, this uh, talk today. The first is, what did he see? What did he feel? How did he act? And then what did he say? So if you want a summary of those, it's basically see, feel, act, speak. That's, that's where we're heading with this. So we've looked at what he saw. Now we're moving on to what he felt. Verse 16, uh, the word there, it says he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. But greatly distressed doesn't really get across the emotion to us. The key to understanding this emotion um, will help you to really make sense of the rest of what he says and what he does in this place. But it is translated as stirred up or provoked inside his inner spirit. It's not a sudden shot of anger. It's sort of this deep, abiding, continuous reaction to what's going on. It's a word that gets associated with God in the Old Testament. If you read in Exodus after uh, God gives the commandments to his people. Um, soon after that, uh, they, build an, uh, they melt down their jewellery and build a golden calf. And God's reaction to that is the same word that Paul feels here. It's absolute indignation. It's jealousy. It's, why is it jealousy? Well, jealousy can be a bad thing. It can also be a good thing. How is it a bad thing? Well, it's the green-eyed monster of wanting someone else's looks or opportunities or um, money or skills or whatever. Yes, it is a bad thing. But if it's a third party who's interrupting and intruding on a relationship, on a marriage, then jealousy is a great thing. It's a right thing. And in Isaiah 42, God says, I'm the Lord, that is my name. I won't give my glory to another or my praise to idols. God is jealous of our attention. And that is a good thing. Paul is moved inwardly here, not by bad temper or by sheer obedience to the Great Commission. He's not even just a love for the lost here. This is a jealousy for the right honouring and the glorying of Jesus Christ in people's lives. It's an indignation. So how do you channel that indignation? What, how does that manifest itself? Well, let me explain one possibility. A few years back, uh, my wife and I got free entry to the Garden of Unearthly Delights. You know, one of those pre-sort of um, opening sort of things. So we went along, and as we were walking towards the entrance, we noticed that there were chalk comments on the footpath, and they said things like, God is love. And I thought, isn't this good? The Christians are out. You know, in the middle of the fringe, there they are, just, you know, getting the gospel out to people. But as we drew closer to the venue's gates, the messages got increasingly angry. Turn to God. If you don't, you're going to hell. By the time we reached the gate, there they were, 
ranting, raving, yelling and angry, angry as at the, at the crowd of people, telling them not to go in through the gates as if that was hell itself. And that was the Adelaide Street Preachers in full flight. Now, I suppose Paul had that option open to him when he saw all the city full of idols, you know, ah, give them a bit of himself. But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't even weep over the city's idolatry. Um, maybe if it's us, I mean, we could say, you know, look at Adelaide, look at its heritage. It was a Christian place. Where, have we, where are we now? You know, we've lost all that. You know, you could whinge, I suppose. Paul's distress leads neither to ambivalence nor ranting nor even shutting down. It drives him to engagement. Um, Paul sees a city full of idols and his heart is provoked and he wants to connect to the people living in it. Look at verse 17. He reasoned at the synagogue with the God-fearers on the Sabbath. That's like coming here, I suppose, the equivalent. But he disputed in the marketplace for the rest of the week. It's so easy to trip over that and not realise that for the rest of the week he was out in the public space. It's difficult to find an equivalent for that marketplace that he talk, that's talked about there. It's called the Agora. And that's the closest equivalent I can find to it. That's the markets in Istanbul, which just have absolutely anything and everything you could possibly want to buy or trade. The Agora was exchange central, but it was not just commodities. It was ideas, it was philosophies, it was religions, it was merchandise. And if you wanted anything, you could go to the Agora. And Paul takes the glorious gospel into that place to be scrutinised, examined and publicly played with, so to speak. He allows the gospel to go into that space. And you know what? It actually holds up surprisingly well. What's the equivalent of the Agora for you up in the Adelaide Hills? I don't know. Maybe this. Certainly not looking like that today, though, is it? <laughs> but I've been there, and my, my take on it is there's more than plants and food and, um, you know, things being exchanged physically. There's ideas. There's people uh, talking about the things that are important to them, what they've decided to build their lives around, their lifestyles and so on. So it is, it's an exchange. It's a place of great exchange. We came up with a few others, Kez and I, between us, the Organic Market Cafe. I, I go in there sometimes and I certainly, I see more than just uh, the food being exchanged. Um, maybe the library is a place where this community comes and goes and you get a cross-section of who's around. Um, or even outside Woolies, you know, dropped in there a couple of times and seen some buskers and then people talking to each other. Obviously, that's a place where people meet and uh, talk and exchange. But you probably know far better than uh, me where those places are in the Adelaide Hills. We may not have the equivalent of the Agora, but we've got places like it. It's the public space where people meet. Now, Paul reasons with the two prevailing philosophies. They're very, very different of that city. But effectively, the Epicureans, who were driven by pleasure, they were advocating a way of life that was basically driven by pleasure. And then the Stoics, who espoused that the world was determined by fate, and you basically had to suck it up and to you know, accept what the gods dished out to you in life. 
And what Paul is doing is he's showing you that he can actually interact with these worldviews and learn about them, find out what those people believe, and then um, interact with them before he preaches the gospel to people in those public spaces. And in fact, because he has that sort of engagement, he gets hauled up before the what was considered the Supreme Educative Council in Athens, the Areopagus. And I think what Paul's modelling here is great because it shows us what Proverbs has actually talked about. If you go back into your Old Testament, it says that wisdom isn't locked up inside a building. It's actually out there crying out on the streets. Now, last year, City Bible Forum staged a major event in our city. And I've got to tell you, I, was, I am a little bit creative, but I was nervous about this one, and rightly so. We put on a resurrection debate. And the first, the first way we were going to do it was I'd booked the High Court to do it. So it was going to be a court case. And I got the lawyers together who were Christians, and they said to me, this is not going to fly because under the rules of a court, you are not going to be able to bring the New Testament in. And we're just going to be, you're just basically going to cut the lawyers, the Christian lawyers off at their knees in terms of being able to give a case for the resurrection. So it'll, it'll just end badly. <laughs> so, so we swapped it and we went to the state library and we said instead of a court case, um, we said, let's debate whether the resurrection of Jesus should go into the fiction or the non-fiction section of the library. Uh, and let's get two lawyers to respond to two historians who are for and against. So historians for and against, lawyers for and against. Fortunately, able to get a really good person to moderate it, the former Deputy Prime Minister, John Anderson, who was very fair. Anyway, we did the thing and... In the lead-up, it's always unnerving when you have a Christian lean forward you know, and say to you, oh, that's great. You're going to make sure the Christian wins, aren't you? <laughs> I think, well, I, I can't control everything. Um, but I think that the goal of that was to actually try and get the gospel out into the public space to be scrutinised and to let it hold up itself and trust that it could with, you know, using good people, making sure there were good people on both sides. Do you know one of the results of that for me, which really surprised me, was the wife of the lawyer who was against the resurrection, who said, you know, let me at it, I can't wait to do this. She, at the end of the night, she was sitting there and she said to her, how was that for you? And she said, well, that was just so different. I, I don't have any setting where I do this, where I can talk about the big things. Oh, hang on, no. When I'm half tanked at a dinner party, that's probably the only place. That's what she said. So it engaged people, it connected, it provided a host of further conversations about Jesus and the resurrection. We put the documents of the resurrection well, we put the end of every gospel plus a bit of Paul from 1 Corinthians on the resurrection, put them together and we said, here are the resurrection documents from the Bible. I had about 150 and they were all gone at the end of the night. People just snaffled them up 
and took them home. Now, it's countercultural to the way modern thinking is working. Um, I think as Christians we can get, we can retreat to the church when we think hostility is growing. We watch an episode of Q&A on the ABC and we think, oh dear, it's getting a shocking world out there. So we retreat back into the Christian community to cope. The other thing is the world on the other side is saying to us, you know, your faith, you know, you believe in Jesus, you believe in uh, yoga, you know, you, you, you do, you, that's great, but just keep it in the private space. You know, that's good for you, but don't bring it into the public realm. We don't want that. But what Paul says is if people are out shopping, we should be there. This is the way over here. You see, the gospel really, some people treat the gospel a bit like an artwork. You know, it should be under lock and key and displayed to people behind a cordoned area and and make sure nobody can get near it and deface it and do anything to it. I understand why that is there. I understand we're wanting to be protective. But I think that the gospel is more akin to the pigs in Rundle Mall. It's public art. It, that, that public art has to stand up to kids, you know, coming and, you know, riding them and, you know, waving at them and people taking photos and people, some people not even seeing them. It has to be able to stand up for itself in the public space. And as Christians, we need to follow the Bible's lead, not the culture at this point, because the Bible says that your faith in Jesus is a very public thing. When you walk out this door, you can't leave your faith with your Bible and come back and then collect it all and walk back in here next week. You have to go with it. Paul looked at a city of idols. He was provoked. It drove him to connect. He was neither obnoxious nor cowardly in proclaiming that truth. And the vast majority of people who are out there in our world have extremely inaccurate views of what the gospel is these days, built on a couple of movies, a couple of um, debates or things that they've watched on TV and some crazy stuff they've looked at on the internet. And that's their understanding of Christianity. We have a responsibility to take that gospel out to people. It's so important that people don't remain ignorant. It's a dangerous thing to reject something that you don't know you've rejected or that you think you've rejected what the gospel is. The gospel needs to be examined and scrutinised in the public place. So what did Paul say? Finally, what did he actually say when he got the opportunity? Well, it's really important to understand this is not the only thing he said. We've just got the summary of the highlights here. Because some people, when they look at this particular um, uh, talk that Paul gives, they'll say, oh, this is not a good one because um, there's no cross in it. You won't find him talking about the cross. Well, he, he doesn't talk about the cross in this particular talk, but if you go to verse 18, you'll see it's not the only talk he gave in Athens. In fact, it says on many occasions he had talked about who Jesus was and what he had done. So what does he say in this account? Verse 23 He comments on the Athenians first um, before he talks about God. And he says to them, you know, I've been walking around this city and gosh, you guys are really into idols. You know, you got gods for everything in this place. In fact, I came across one that's got to the unknown God, just in case you missed out on one. You know, you think, great initiative, guys. You know, 
I want to tell you about that unknown God. He's turned up. Ah, it's a great way in. Verse 24. This is the God who created everything, not just some part of the universe. And any attempt to try and limit him and put him into a human shelter is just ridiculous. Verse 25. We don't build temples for God. God creates a world for us. He sustains life. He created the nations from one human. He determined where we'd live, both chronology, geography. Verse 28, we are in fact the children of God. We're made in his image rather than God being captured in ours. And he's come near to us. And when he does that, often we, we, we hive off away from him. Verse 30, God is patient. But he has been patient. Now he calls on us to turn to him because he's going to judge us all of us, with perfect clarity on the day that he decides. Verse 31, that portfolio he's given to the one that he resurrected, Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who could sit under God's judgment and come back to life. And Jesus is now God's judge. Can you see what he's done very quickly with these people? He said, God's made the heavens and the earth. Uh, people have localised idols. Sorry, God makes the heaven and the earth. It can't be contained in a shelter that you try and build for your gods. God makes us in his image. We, we try and make God in ours. Um, we are the invention of God, not God being the invention of us. God makes all people. We always make little localised gods that look after our particular guilds or people or, you know, vicinities we judge which god we will select no god is going to judge us actually at the end of the day by one person perfectly qualified the resurrected jesus christ at every point this is a direct hit on the nature of their own idolatry so what can you learn from this well i think you know when you're confronted by a family or a school class or a group of mums or a work culture or a village that's swamped by a sea of idols and varying opinions on who God is and what he is. And what do you do? Well, you do what Paul does. You paint a clearer picture of God. You don't try and get in there and say, oh, no, I believe in God. You tell them who the God is that you believe in. You clear the picture of God. Now, there is a very response to what Paul says. There's three responses there in verses 32 to 34. Some sneer, some say, we'll hear you again, and others believe. The first, we, we, we think, oh, yeah, that's going to happen, the sneer. Do you know what the sneer is, really? The sneer is just the rolling of the eyes without any justification for it and without any reasons given why that person doesn't think that what you're saying is true. It's so lazy. It's dangerously ignorant and incredibly arrogant. But the second two are surprising. Paul's proclamation leads to more engagement, not less. You know, we think that when we start talking about God, it's going to close the conversation. But I can tell you that from my own experience of talking one-to-one with people who aren't Christians, it tends, people tend to be far more receptive than I think to a discussion about who God is. Um, 
we do training workshops sometimes for people to read the Bible with someone. So it runs over two weeks, and the first week, at the end of it, we say, now, not, not putting it under pressure, but why don't you pray this week that you can, God will show you somebody who you could perhaps ask to read the Bible with. And then you get them back the next week. And you say, now, has anybody had a chance to see whether they, you know, there was an opportunity that presented to ask to read the Bible? Now, I had to do that myself if I was going to ask other people to do it. So I was sitting around the office all week in one of these sessions thinking, gee, I wonder who I should be on. And then I thought, you know, the guy next door in the next room uh, to me in the office in the city, he's an accountant and he's been curious about things that come along. To I wonder whether I should ask him. Every time I went in there, there was a whole group of, you know, there were other workers around. It was a bit awkward. So I finally went in there on the Friday and he was on his own. And I said to him, look, I've just been wondering, I don't know whether you're interested or not, but I was just wondering whether you'd ever like to read the Bible um, together just uh, for a few weeks or, you know, waiting for the no. And he goes, yeah, I've been reading Romans and found it very difficult. I think this guy 20 feet away from me on the other side of the wall has been reading Romans on his own, trying to pick his way through it. And I've been sitting on the other side scared. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Sneer, let's hear more, I believe. We think engaging with the gospel closes doors. The Bible reminds us here that it could open doors. So how do you respond to a city of idols? There are four things you can do after you hear this story today of Paul, I think, that can help you take your faith into the public space. See, feel, act, speak. The sequence is important because I think sometimes we don't speak because we haven't tried to connect. And the reason we haven't tried to connect is because we haven't felt and the reason we haven't felt is because we're so busy we haven't looked and really seen what's going on. Which part of that sequence do you think needs your attention for you? What do you see? Uh, there's a friend, Tommy, who's a mainland Chinese atheist. Um, he was seconded to Adelaide for business. And I asked him, you know, how are you coping with um, Western culture coming from China, you know, mainland China? And he said, oh, look, I'm getting to know the team. Basically, um, you know, Bill, he's into uh, the races. So I always look at the racing guide on the weekend. And when I see him on Monday morning, I go, oh, King Farouk, he did really well last weekend in Mooney Ponds. You know, and then, um, you know, Linda, she's into real estate. I go, oh, can you believe it? You know, on the weekend, 1.5 million for our house in Door Park or whatever it was, you know. And then Maddie, she watches some soap opera that I don't understand. I come in, I say, oh, isn't it amazing that June's left David, you know. <laughs> but basically what he's doing is he's connecting. He's taking the time and the trouble to get to know people, what they're interested in, what they do with their lives. And he's relating to them far better than some Christians, I might add. And we've got so much more to give, so much more to say. We live in a city calibrated towards pleasure, 
personal enjoyment becomes the basis for almost every decision that people are making these days, where they live, what they eat, what holidays they have, where they retire, even how they vote. It's based on pleasure. The language of fulfilment has replaced the language of service and that's crept all the way into the church as well, into our church culture. Can you really see what's going on with the people around you who don't know Christ? Look like Paul looked. Do you need to feel the holy jealousy for the honour and the glory of Jesus in people's lives? That indignation that an idol is shortchanging people and, and God is not getting what he should deserve from that human being. Does that provoke you to action? And what sort of action? Ambivalence? Spitting? Shouting? Or does it drive you to connect, to engage to allow the gospel to be scrutinised, examined, reasoned with in the public square. That's not obnoxious and that's certainly not cowardly. And what do you say when you're in that space? Well, you paint a bigger, a clearer picture of the God that you have come to know and believe in from the Bible. See, feel, act, speak. Which one do you need to work on? Uh, we live in a world where people are not worship neutral. Um, everybody worships something. There are only two types of people, those who give themselves to the true and living God and those who give themselves to false gods. That's the bottom line. Can you see the idols that are capturing your friends and your workmates and those gods, they're everywhere. They're captivating people. People live for Aphrodite, the god of sex. People live for Apollos, the god of sport. Bacchus, the god of revelry. These gods are alive and well. And they'll never forgive you if you fail them just once. And they will never satisfy if you try to secure them. They'll always be just beyond your grasp. Les Murray, the poet, has this great quote. It's worth remembering. The true God gives us his flesh and blood. In contrast, an idol demands yours of you. The true God gives you his flesh and blood. An idol demands yours of you. See? Feel? Act, speak. Which one do you need to work on this week? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you might give us a profound appreciation of the pervasive impact of idolatry in our lives and in the lives of the people that we rub up against during the week. Help us to realise that uh, the world is not worship neutral. We pray that uh, we might be those that have the privilege of helping people find the true and living God. We pray that you will help us to speak as Paul spoke, to go where Paul goes, to see what Paul sees, to feel what he felt. And we ask this for the glory of Christ. Amen.
we're going to continue to pray now is that Katrina comes up. We're going to